Scripture this morning is from Matthew uh, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks, bud. Morning. Anybody know what this is? Nope. That's what I said last week. This is a radish. You know what this is? This is a turnip. They don't look anything alike. It's a radish. All right. So so here's the story behind this. This is going to be totally confusing if you weren't here the last couple of weeks. But here's the story. So about three weeks ago... I talked about the fact that while I don't personally like radishes, they grow really quickly. One of the beautiful things is they can grow in cold weather and they grow quickly. So here's a picture uh, of in, in here of my current radishes that were planted a couple of weeks ago. And you can see them springing forth. Those are little radishes grown in a couple of weeks. I'll actually we'll have something not quite this large, but but pretty close to this in about 25 to 30 days. And it was just my reminder that. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing when you plant something and actually see something happen. So much of our lives is taken up with long-term work that you don't see a lot of fruit in. You don't just see a lot of results in. That's why, like, people sometimes like to iron or do clothes. They're like, I see a result. I put, I mean, you may not like the chore, but you like seeing something actually change. Because with us, we're marathons. We're long-term redemption projects. Some of y'all have been praying for people and longing for people's character to change for decades. It's not a radish. It's not even a turnip. This only takes about 10 weeks, right? Last week, I started talking with my mind thinking about this, but what came out of my mouth was turnip. 
And I was, I was confusing most everyone in the room, not myself. See, I was perfectly content because I was talking about this, but saying this. My takeaway from this is be careful what you say. Your words matter. I just completely confused everyone at Living Hope last week. Everybody came up to me like, what? What was this about the turnip? Wasn't it a radish? And a, oh, yeah. I, I wish I could say it's the first time I've ever done that. It's not. Do you all have sometimes something come out of your mouth and you know what you're talking about, but the wrong word comes out? So I'll blame it on age and the fact that our words matter. Our words are really important. And sometimes you just need to go back and say, I'm human. So anyway, so this is my recollection. I'll probably never make that mistake again, which also cost me a lot of money because about 10, 15 years ago, I was on Jeopardy. Okay, that's a little known fact. I was on the show. And... Um, and uh, the um, when when one of the questions, which my at that time very young children uh, thought that, that I should have been, Benjamin was just a baby, but the other two were were at home and much smaller. And they said um, it was a Veggie Tales question. You think here I am, a pastor, having owned and gotten every one of the Veggie Tales. This was the story. It wasn't turnips or radishes, but the answer was Junior asparagus. But in my mind, I saw broccoli. So on national television, the pastor says, Junior Broccoli. No lie. At some point, I'll show you the clip. To which my children, the only question they would have known the answer to, they were like, I thought our father was smart. (laughs) But I said on national television, Junior Broccoli, which I'm sure everyone was like, what? It's this. It's this story. Watch your words. Think about what you say. That was all free. That was no extra at all. If you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 18, we've been working through the uh, gospel of Matthew and I'm going to we've been focusing on small stories and and pictures and but trying to give you the broad sense of why was this gospel written? This is written 30 something years after Jesus died. Matthew is writing to a congregation filled primarily with Jews, but some Gentiles who are trying to figure out is who is this Messiah? Who is Jesus? And he's trying to speak to Jews who are um, who are trying to figure out is this is this the promise? Is this the one that the Hebrew Bible spoke of? And so, again, we've looked over and over again at how uh, Matthew brings in and says, look, this is to fulfill what the prophets taught. This is the new Moses. This is the fulfillment of Abraham. This is the fulfillment of David. And so 130 times we have uh, scriptures from what we call the Old Testament brought into Matthew to say, this is the guy. It's pointing to the identity of Jesus. Now, Jesus is, we've looked again and again at how what he says and what he does have pointed together to say this is what it looks like when God's kingdom, and he would have said the kingdom of heaven because uh, Jews very are very respectful of using the name God, G-O-D. They, they don't use that term the way we do as loosely. They think even speaking that name, that holy name of Yahweh, you just, you know, it's, 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 he's so holy, it's even unsayable. So he would say the kingdom of heaven. This is what it's like when the king comes. So we've seen Jesus 
providing food for people, Jesus uh, bringing healing, Jesus bringing freedom from demonic possession. This is what it's like when the king comes. And now in verse in chapter 18, he begins to shift and he says, this is now what it's like when people who follow the king, kingdom people, this is what it's like when they live together. Because it's not just what Jesus does for me, we are, just as Israel was, supposed to be a reflection in the way we live together in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, in, in however we interact, we are supposed to reflect this king. So many of the stories that he's dealing with in chapters 17 and particularly in 18, 19, 20 are talking about this is how you live together. So I'm gonna, I want to point out a couple of things, and then I want to land on the story that Bud read, but I want to just point out a, a couple. There, there's so many stories, and I could focus a whole sermon on many of these smaller stories in here, but I'm going to step back and try to give more of an overarching view of this. So we found last week that Peter identifies the identity of Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then he's he backs up and he says, you can't go to the cross. And Jesus rebukes him. The end of chapter 17, he says, no, no, get behind me, Satan. You've missed the purposes of God. So Peter had, had made the identity correct, but he missed the mission. So the question is, what's the mission of the king? For most people looking at the Messiah, the way they read the Old Testament, he was going to come as a conquering king, one to restore the nation of Israel to independence, loose them from the bonds of Rome. But Jesus says, you know, my purpose and mission is much larger than that. It's to be a suffering servant. And that's something that the it took a while for the disciples to get their head around. So what's the purpose? What's the mission? Yes, I'm a king. Yes, he's conquering. But what he's conquering is not earthly kingdoms. He's conquering sin and death. So... When in chapter 18, you've got your Bible and you look at that, the beginning of it, there's a little story where the disciples are discussing who is the greatest in this kingdom. How, how is it measured? Now, in the kingdoms of the earth, think for a second, how, how, how do we measure someone who's great? When you look at the list that come out of the most influential people, whatever, they usually are well-known, Usually, you're, if you're, you're not influential, if no one knows you, so it takes a certain amount of fame, usually takes a certain amount of money, or of, in some way, they're pushing culture or people one direction or another. It's accomplishment. And Jesus says, okay, let's contrast this kingdom of this world, because it was all, it's always been thus. Kings and rulers and people of means, they are the difference makers. They are the great ones. And he says, and he brings in a small child into their midst in verse 2, and he puts them in the midst of his disciples, and he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now see this in the backdrop of what he had said about John the Baptist. You'll remember a few chapters before, he talked about John the Baptist, and he says, this guy is the greatest guy that's ever lived. 
He says, this guy was a great man, but he contrasts it and he said, and yet even the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So, so there got to be adjusting to that news. It's like, whoa, I'm, I'm not even sure they knew what that mean, meant, or I'm not even sure I know what that means exactly. But this is what Jesus had told them. And then he says, okay, now who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? John the Baptist, greatest here on earth. Least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than this guy on earth. He brings a little child and says, and here's the greatest. So we go from here down to here. What is it about a small child that's so great? Is it that they're so wise? They're so influential? Are they innocent? Not my kids. <laughs> Sometimes we think, oh, little children, they, they're, just, they, they're just so cherubic and idyllic. Maybe your kids, right? I love you. But they were... They were, kids are kids, they're sinners as much as we are. What is it about children that makes them so great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, I don't know exactly, but I, I want to suggest to you that, it, that, that, that they're completely dependent. They completely bring nothing to the table of accomplishment. Where do we stand? Where do we think we have with God that makes us feel like Oh, well, God, I mean, what are you going to lay before the Lord? Let's just say, this is it. Today is the day. Two minutes from now, you're standing before the Lord. You wake up. What are you going to lay before Him? I tell you, our, at least my heart, maybe yours is different, but my heart is going to be, well, God, I, I really did my best to serve you. I, I um, you know, tried to raise my kids, tried to love my wife, which are all good things, right? I'm beginning to lay my accomplishments now before God. God, I tried to pastor church, and before that, I tried to be an honest soul. And... Were you a little child? What? Were you were you just a little were you a little kid? Look, when I told I said this before, but you know we we try to we try to teach our children like from a very young age to trust the Lord and to put their faith in Him or whatever. When my kids were two or three, I could have told them to trust Spider-Man and they would have trusted him. <laughs> Little children believe what they're told by their parents, right? We, we mark that as an age differential at, I don't know, some children are a little more cynical younger. But really, when you're a small child, whatever, mom and dad represent God to them. So whatever they say is right. They think you're the perfect and you can do anything. It's only until they're like teenagers they learn the truth. How fallible, right? That we all are. Would you be willing to come before the Lord and say, well, you know what? I just believe what you said. You said you rose again from the dead. I just believed it. But didn't you have this proof? Didn't you test it out? Didn't you, you know, work the, work the apologetic program? Yeah, I guess. I don't know, I just believed what you said, Lord. Your word said it, and I believed it. How did you live? Again, I'd want to present. If, if I was trying to impress somebody, I'd try to present and say, well, you know, I saved up, I've got a decent amount in the IRA or whatever. What? Well, we sometimes think we want to present to God. This is how I've lived my life. I've, I've somehow returned to you. Lord, I was just completely dependent on you. Whether I did anything else, I, I just, I just, every day I was just dependent upon you. 
I have a feeling that somehow we're going to get to heaven and figure out this little child thing is a lot more important, this dependence, ultra dependence on God. Does that mean we don't live like mature adults in the world? Absolutely not. But it has nothing to do with your standing before the Lord. So the first thing, what does the kingdom of God in community with us look like? And it's people who live in utter dependence and who don't, because it gets rid of the, the competition of who's better or who's worse. We're all dependent. We're all dependent. The community of the king, we live in dependence. The second thing I want to look at is the parable of the lost sheep. Very quickly, Matthew 18, verse 10. Don't despise one of these little children. I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The second thing I want to say about the community of the king is that every one of us matters, individuals matter. When we look at the things of this world, you know, casualties are to be expected. That's like a, you know, you got to understand. And if, if generally we get in the right place, if a few people get lost in the shuffle, so be it. In the community, every person matters. It's an individual community. This, this story, in one sense, like, look, a hundred sheep, one. I mean, if you got the, if the 99 are okay, like, does the one matter? In the world terms, not so much. In the kingdom of God, absolutely. And you know who it matters to most? The one. If you're the sheep that's, that's out of the pen and gone astray, it super matters to you if it matters to the shepherd. And it matters most to the shepherd who loves every sheep. And it matters whether or not you're in the kingdom or not. It matters to God. It doesn't matter to the world. This world doesn't really care whether you're in that camp or this camp. We're, we're, yes, we're an individualistic society and all that, but ultimately any group doesn't care about you like the shepherd of your soul does. So we've got the community of the king is a community of dependence. The community of the king is a community of the one, of the everyone. And let me just say this too, that if you're somebody who you would identify yourself now as somebody who's up on the hills somewhere and you're running from God, you know, maybe you don't, don't want to. Maybe you do want to. You wish God would just let you alone. And this is, you know, if you're listening on Facebook Live or whatever, you just know you're away. Can I tell you the shepherd is on the hills seeking you out. He came to seek and save those who were lost, including sheep who don't want to be found. He goes, it says, even to the very pits of hell to find you. And he won't force you to turn, but he will never, never stop pursuing you. Third, it's, and I, I just will briefly say this, it's a kingdom where accountability matters. 
not everything goes in the kingdom. This Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is the picture of how church uh, community life stays disciplined. And it's this walking. Many of you who've been in church life for a while will recognize these steps of, you know, if your brother has is sinning, do this, and then have two or three people go, and then the church, it's this way. But, but I want to point out just one thing rather than walk through that. I want to just look at verse 15 for a moment because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of accountability. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Stop. The church will be better served. We as the kingdom of God, you and your families will be better served if we actually just did that verse. That if you are offended by someone, if someone has said something or done something, if I have said something or done something to you, do not tell anyone else until you come and tell me. Tell the Lord. You can pour out your complaint about me or anyone else before the Lord. But let's start with just verse 15. Go and tell the fault. Go and tell the problem you're having to the person who had the problem. Most of us, and I, no sexist implied in this, it's just the phrase we use, man up or woman up. I know we don't like to confront. I hate to confront. But I've had to sit down. Some of you all know I've had to sit down and say, this troubled me. This troubled me. I, I feel like there's something going on. What's happening? I know it's a little awkward. It is so much better to do God's Word and to see the result happen than to go and tell someone else or all the other shenanigans this world says. Even before you go and tell a trusted counselor, which I get, sometimes you have to work it through and I get that, but I would tell you, obey the word. Go to the person and, and you don't have to say it's your, like it's all you. Just say, I, I feel there's trouble between us. What's going on? How do you feel? Let's see what happens if we obey God's word in it. Kingdom is a kingdom of uh, accountability. So we've got, if you go back, we have a place of dependence. It's a place of um, the one matters and a place of accountability. And then finally, it's a place of forgiveness. Let's look at this parable. I won't read through it again, but the parable of the unforgiving servant is often what it's called. Peter came and says, this is verse 21 of Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations, including the King James, read 70 times seven. We've gotten the 490. The word there, uh, the, the actual Greek word is just, uh, it, it's kind of confusing to us because we don't speak like this, but it's just, it says, uh, hepta, you know, the, uh, the Greek um, uh, first word, whatever the prefix, hepta, the word, and then the word for time. So that word. And then it just says that many times, and then it has the word instead of seven times, 70 times, and then the word for seven again. So could it read 70 times seven, like multiplied by seven? Probably not. But here's the point. Here's the point. He says... Peter says seven times. Why does Peter pick that? Well, Jews at that day, there's, there's all sorts of rabbinic literature on there trying to parse out the scriptures. And the common wisdom of the day was that you would uh, forgive people according to 
uh, what the Scripture taught. And so they looked to see, how does God forgive us? The, and the, God, and the uh, prophet Amos, in chapter 1, verse 3, the uh, rabbis taught that we should forgive as God does. It says here, for three transgressions of Damascus, perhaps for four, I will forgive and not revoke the punishment. Again, in Amos chapter 2, verse 6, it says, uh, I will uh, send fire upon Judah and devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. For three transgressions of Israel, I will not revoke the punishment, perhaps for four. So you see where Peter's going with this? Peter says, well, okay, I'll, I'll go far beyond the law. The law says three or four times you forgive. I'll go seven. Again, Job chapter 33, he says, you know, chapter 33, verse 29, says, Behold, God does all these things once, twice, even three times with a man. He will bring his soul back from the pit. Peter says seven times. How about seven times? Jesus says, Peter, how about 77 times? We go to... If you have your Bible, you can put your finger in, Matthew, in Luke 17 because the same teaching was recorded in Luke. Slightly different flavor as many of the, these Gospels tend to give us. Jesus would have taught these parables many times in many different ways. And so the, it's not, it's not um, unusual that they would have recorded various parts of this. But Luke 17, verses 3 through 7, he says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Interesting. Seven times every day. What's the point? Are we counting? Seven, 77, 490? What are we counting up? Our sin? What is this? What is this? Jesus is saying, I want this community to be a community where the kind of forgiveness I gave is the kind of forgiveness you give. Simple as that. So here's the parable he told, and it all has to do with what I call a new normal. So he tells this story, and he says in verse, uh, and we're back in Matthew chapter 18. As he's telling, he says, well, let me tell you a story because this is what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is, can be compared to. It says a king who wished to settle accounts. So he begins to settle these accounts and, uh, one of the people comes and they, he looks at the ledger and he says, you owe 10,000 talents. Okay. A talent, uh, was, was just a huge, huge amount of money. It's a weight. It's, it's a silver weight. It's not like a, a, a monetary amount, but it's a weight. And so just like if you said, if I gave you a pound of gold, it would be a little bit different today or tomorrow. It's a lot. But basically he says, look, this talent itself would be about 75 pounds of silver, which was a gigantic amount of money. And how many talents was it? 10,000. Basically, what he's saying is this is an inconceivable large amount of money. You owe the national debt. You personally owe the national debt back. It really doesn't matter at some point, does it? You know, get to a billion or two billion, 
10 billion or 20 billion. Does it matter to us? Those numbers are inconceivable. They're in, they're, I'll never, I'm never paying back the national debt, me personally. I can't do it. That's the kind of debt that is spoken of here. Incomprehensible. But what does the servant say? Since he couldn't pay, the master ordered him to be sold. The consequences were life-ruining. The servant fell on his knees in verse 26. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Was that true? No. You're not paying the national debt no matter how much you'd like to. You're not doing it. It was, it was laughably impossible. So what does the master do? After he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused at first, the master says, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. I'm sorry, that's the second part of the story. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that one had the servant released and forgave him the debt. So, incomprehensibly large debt, impossible to pay back, life consequence of the non-payment was ruinous, the offer of debt forgiveness was completely restorative. It became, I want to offer you, the. this became the new normal for the servant who was forgiven. Now he didn't know anything. In that new normal state, a, a man free from debt, not owing anything, he finds someone who owes him a hundred denarii. That was a very doable amount. Denarii's a day's laborer's wages. Nowadays, maybe a few thousand dollars. If you talk about for minimum wage, for I mean, it's, it's doable. It's still a big amount of money for a lot of people, but it's doable. And in the in his new normal. The one who was owed the money takes it out on the one who owed him, has him thrown into prison, and then the first servant, the one who'd been forgiven, is landed on by the master, and the comparison is now complete. So what's the takeaway for us in the kingdom of God in this community? Seven times, remember he's answering the question, how many times will I be forgiven? The lost sheep, remember, is the one that's it's pretty important that the shepherd gets. Are you anyone who's been in debt? Forgiveness, we think of as a feeling. In our society, when you say, well, I just can't forgive, what you really mean is I just don't have any feelings that want to forgive. I'm hurt. Get that. I've been there. The Bible doesn't speak of forgiveness as a feeling, really ever. I mean, the Bible says very little about your feelings, just so you know that. The Bible really doesn't deal with your feelings too much. A little bit. It deals a lot with debt forgiveness. When I was um, just about the time Nancy and I were married, I owned a, a, a Honda Civic, great Honda Civic back in the 80s, and uh, I had been able, I was only a few years old, didn't have many miles on it, would go a lot more. And I decided to sell it to a friend who was in need. She did a ministry and 
but I sold it for a very small amount of money, actually, way less than it was worth, and I felt pretty magnanimous about it. Frankly, I felt pretty good about myself for giving it to them, but I thought it would be, I don't know, appropriate that charge her a little bit, and I made it very affordable, uh, 100 bucks a month to pay the car for whatever it was. And um, so I thought, this is great. She'll get it. She's, you know, she needs this for her ministry and whatever, and, and I was in a position to get a new car. And uh, so we did that, and after about six months, um, the check stopped coming, and with no word from her. And I, I, was really, I, was, I was really put out, frankly, because she owed me the money. I mean, I'd written up a little, you know, a little handwritten contract of, you know, 100 bucks a month for X amount of months, and it just stopped coming. And you know what? It bothered me. I tell you, it bugged me. Because I, it, it was fair, and you can, you know, from a worldly standpoint, you can argue all you want. It was what was owed to me. I was right. And I was completely enslaved to the debt. I had hard feelings toward her. It took me actually years to get over them. Four years later, a friend of ours, at that point, we moved to Florida, and a friend of ours needed a car, and uh, they were struggling financially, and so we had a little bit of extra money, and my wife and I gave them just a gift and said, here, help this to buy your car. It was no big deal. And uh, it was actually, within about $100, the exact same amount that I had charged my friend for, but we were just in a small, different, little bit different financial position. You know, it never bothered me a second time. I don't even know what they did with the money. I just handed them cash. Said, here, I trust you. Go buy a car. We just have some extra money. I know you need the money and whatever. Boom. And I don't think I ever thought about that again until just a little while ago. To this day, that debt, they eventually paid me off. But we had a very ugly conversation about it where, you know, just, I don't know. I, I had such bad feelings about it because they owed me. Forgiveness is about what you're owed. And there are people here and people listening, whatever. You, you think you're owed because people did you wrong. And you know what another truth of the matter is? You're right. You're owed. But you aren't owed as much as you were forgiven. Because the Son of Man, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins. And it was more than the national debt. It was more than 10,000 talents. And he did it for you because he loves you so much. And your new normal should not be that you're owed. Your new normal should be you're forgiven a debt that you could never pay. And if it's true, if it's true, that you've been forgiven a debt that you could never pay, then seven times or 77 times or 490 times makes absolutely no difference. Now, forgiveness does not mean there's no consequence for sin. Forgiveness doesn't mean you're going to feel like forgiving. You may the rest of your life not feel like forgiving someone who did you wrong. Okay. He might. God might deal with your feelings, but there is no promise in Scripture that your feelings will be all better and you'll feel warm fuzzies toward the person who did you wrong. No guarantee. Maybe. Doesn't matter. Are you owed? And are you owed in comparison to what you are forgiven? Be kind to one another, the book of Ephesians tells us. 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If your new normal is as a forgiven person who can never hold another grudge, can never hold revenge, that's the mark of forgiveness. That you will not hold a grudge and you will not seek revenge. As much as your feelings might want you to. Your feelings are your feelings. Just get over them. They're just what you feel. They might be wrong. They might be right. It doesn't matter. Let God deal with your feelings. But if you're a forgiven person and your new normal is being a forgiven person by a debt that you could never repay, then you will live the rest of your life ready to forgive. There's a lot more that could be said about forgiveness and, and the release of that and what's appropriate and boundaries. and There's a lot to it. But I want our, I want I, I just want you to leave, you leave today with something of your new normal is that of the person who owed a debt beyond comprehension. And now God's going to put you in situations where people are going to owe you. And they're going to owe you something, and it's going to be significant. But forgiveness is a gift, I think, that we give people, and it just all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore. Like that, just giving away a gift for someone to buy a car, it just never bugged me. I was just, it was great. Great to be able to give. The debt I held on to is the debt that enslaved me. And so it will be with you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in your kingdom, Lord, it looks really different than the way the kingdom of this world looks. And Lord, your kingdom is marked by little children who are being dependent, by, by the importance of the one, even the wandering one, Lord, by accountability, it means we're willing to confront in love and speak the truth even when it's awkward. And Lord, it matters that we forgive because we've been forgiven. And in this community, I think people want to come. I think people want to be part of a community like that where they're not forever in bondage to their mistakes. Lord, they know that while their debt is large toward others, that in a community of forgiveness, it's nothing compared to the debt we've all been forgiven. Let our new normal be as forgiven people who've escaped the wrath because of the grace of God and so we can freely offer, even when it hurts, forgiveness that is transformative. How deep your love for us, Lord, that you would model for us the King dying for his servants to bear the kingdom of heaven and have it come to earth. On earth as it is in heaven, Lord, let it be so. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close?